a guideline on what Christian ethics looks like. And he's drawing us a picture of the heavenly kingdom. And he's saying, uh, for those who belong, for those who live and are a part of this heavenly kingdom, this is what your life looks like. He's not saying these are the things you must do to enter, for we know it is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. But if that is true for you, this is how your life will reflect that reality. And so when he does so, uh, he's taking these various topics, and we studied some of these topics from adultery and lust uh, to anger to forgiveness. And today we're going to continue on with another topic, and that topic is on money on money. And it's a topic that's not often talked about within the church, let alone preached. Uh, There's always a a hush factor whenever it comes to money, Um, just like some of these other topics such as adultery and and anger and forgiveness. It's a very sensitive one. However, Jesus actually talks about money and greed more than any other sin in the Gospels. In fact, he talks about money and greed even more than heaven or hell or lust or any one of those things. And so we followed actually Jesus' preaching schedule. We would always constantly be talking about greed and money and its dangers. But here Jesus also teaches how we can be salt and light through money, the way that we view money, the way we actually use and spend it. And now Jesus talks about it so often because it is, I think, one of the more difficult topics to hear. If you remember, during Jesus' ministry, there was a young man who was following Jesus from all of the miracles and all of the teachings that Jesus was giving. He was spiritually pumped up. He said, you know, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you go. I am ready. Tell me what to do. And Jesus immediately, he says, go, sell whatever you possess and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the young man walked away very sad because he had great possessions. It's a very difficult topic. It's a very difficult challenge. Somebody once said that the way you can test someone's relationship with God is not necessarily how much doctrine they know, nor is it how often they come to church or how often they serve, but by how you look at their checkbook to see where their money goes. He says, few things test a person's spiritually, uh, spirituality more accurately than the way he uses money. And already as I was preparing this message, this was one of the first quotes I came across and immediately I had to confess and, and I had to repent. So uh, already right from the bat, we know uh, that this message is going to be a difficult and a challenge. And I hope it leads us to repentance, but also fruitfulness. So uh, there are three headings this morning, and they're centered around this topic of money. Number one, money and how it deceives us. Money deceives us. Number two, money controls us. And finally, the gospel frees us. Money deceives us. It controls us. The gospel frees us. So with that laid out, let's ask the Lord for his help as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your word is profitable for all aspects of our lives. It's not just our salvations that you are worried about, but it is also how we live our lives now in light of what we have in you. 
So Heavenly Father, we pray that as we study this word, this passage, may not simply give us excitement and conviction for today, but may it impact us tomorrow, even the way we spend our possessions and money so that it ultimately benefits Christ, your kingdom, and as a result, even us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So number one, how money deceives us. Now, when I gave out these particular points, they're not that difficult to follow. Money deceives us, it controls us, and the gospel frees us. And so we might hear this and think, oh, yeah, I generally know what he's going to be saying. I know about the dangers of, of money and how it's something that we need to avoid. And so we might be tempted to tune out. And we might even dismiss what Jesus is saying here to be very simple, too simplistic even. But let me invite you to go a little deeper because it's not as simplistic as you think. In fact, and Jesus does this all the time, he presents a simple idea, but there are so many layers underneath it, deep layers of meaning. And so when I say that money deceives us, uh, it does so in a pretty intricate and subtle way. And here's what I mean. The way that greed, the way that money deceives us, at first, it tries to hide itself. Greed tries to hide itself. And furthermore, it tries to conceal something about us. Those are the two things that money and greed does. It hides itself, and furthermore, it conceals something about us. It's anything but simplistic. It's actually pretty intricate. There is what I call a doubled-layered deception. And here's where I'm getting that, uh, getting this. In this passage about storing earthly treasures and greed, Jesus, he gives this profound statement about the eye and the body. If you look at verse 22, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So Jesus, he makes this connection with darkness and how with the eye, how if it's in darkness, not only will itself be blind, but it will bring our whole bodies, our whole inner beings, our hearts in darkness. And we too will be deceived. There's a doubled layer deception going on. And that's why greed is so dangerous. And this is why he speaks against greed and money more than any other topic in the Gospels. Why is that? Not because it's a weightier sin over others. God, he detests all sins. And not because it has more dangers or stronger ramifications, for example. Murder probably impacts lives a lot more than greed, even though some could argue that both go hand in hand. So then why does Jesus speak against greed and money the most? Because of its deception. It's the most dangerous as it deceives us into destruction. If you look at 1 Timothy 6, I should have it here on the screen, Paul writes, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people to ruin and destruction. And he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that even some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul says that first, greed, it's like a snare, and it makes people wander 
into it, being deceived because the love of money, it actually tells you something about the root of what's going on inside of your hearts, the root of all kinds of evils. There is a doubled layer deception with the eye and our bodies. Let me help us understand this point with a, a very unique example. And I know that as I share, some of you are going to go, what's the point of this story? Where is he getting at? But bear with me. There's a point to it. There's a reason behind. I hope the peculiarity of this uh, will help us remember this. Growing up, I lived in a very big family in a very small house, a, a three-bedroom townhouse when we first immigrated here. Now, we were big, not because my parents had a lot of kids. It was just my sister and I, but we were big uh, because we had a lot of people living with us. Uh, we had my father's family friend's daughter living with us throughout high school. My grandfather's son and my uncle, which is from his second wife, who was very young, was living with us going through high school. In fact, I shared a room with my uncle and my grandfather. So three generations, not only in one house, but in one room. And so having a lot of people, and if you also had a lot of siblings, you probably can relate. One of the things that's a very sensitive topic in the house is snacks and food. So much that I knew where the best hiding places were in my house. But I mentioned that my house was pretty small, so not only did I have to hide the snacks, I had to hide myself eating the snacks because there weren't many places where I could just freely eat without somebody seeing me. So oftentimes, I would literally hide myself in the corner of an attic where it's very stuffy and suffocating. I'm probably eating more dust than the snack or in the closet trying to sneak away bites of this stash that I had. Again, you're probably wondering, why is he sharing this? And it's get to, to get this idea across, I was hiding myself ultimately to hide something deeper, my stash. That's what greed does. There's a doubled layer deception. It hides itself so that it ultimately hides and conceals something about you that it does not want you to know, the stash. And here's how I can explain that. We need to realize how greed hides itself from us. It doesn't want us to know how much it affects us. Let me ask you, in my 10 years of ministry, even here in the States or even overseas, it's been 10 years actually, how many times do you think people wanted to meet with me to talk about their struggles with greed? Not once. Ten years isn't enough, I know. So I looked up some other pastors' experience, Pastor Tim Keller, Pastor Paul Tripp. Out of all of their decades of ministry, how many times do you think people came up to them and said, Pastor, can I talk about my struggle with greed and my sins with it? Not once. Let me ask you this. In your community groups, in your discipleship groups, in your accountability groups even, when was the last time you confessed how you struggled with greed? Or the last time you heard someone else tell you about their issues with it and how they sought and seek your help in fighting against that sin? On top of that, whenever the topic of greed and money gets brought up, it has this power to silence people. 
and make people not want to talk about it. I read this insight from Pastor Tim Keller, who how he shared how he was giving a series of messages. And he was giving a messages, um, these messages on the seven deadly sins. For example, gluttony, lust, pride. And it was a very good turnout. A lot of people came out because they were struggling with a lot of these sins. But do you know on the day that he preached on greed, it was the least attended talk? Why? Because no one thinks they struggle with greed. And that's its danger. That's how greed works. It deceives us by hiding itself. And it has a silencing power to it. And he says, if you are saying here that greed is not a problem of mine, that itself is a very bad sign. No one ever says, he writes, I spend too much money on myself or I think my greed and lust for money is harming my family and my soul and and those around me. No one ever says that. No one thinks they're greedy. And you know why that is? Because money is always relative. We always see money based on the people around us. Of course, there are people that are less fortunate than us. But at the same time, there's always somebody who has more money than you, right? So whenever you look at those guys, you end up saying, I'm not that rich. I'm not that greedy. Money's not big of an issue. Why? Because there's always someone with much more money than you. That's why whenever people travel and visit and go to a third world country, for example, and they come back, what changes? The first thing, what do they notice? notice? Man, we have so much money here. We spend so much on money here, especially compared to these other countries. Why does that change? Because their relative view of the people around them changes. So here in the United States, in the Western culture, we always look at money based on the people around us. Therefore, we never think that greed is an issue. We never think that it's our personal issue, but that in itself is a tall tale sign that greed is at work because the first thing that greed does is it deceives us. It makes us to think it does not exist, but it does, and it silences us from talking about it. There was a student conference, and one of the leaders he read out the words of that famous hymn, and we know this hymn, Take My Life, Let It Be, and he invited the students as they rose up, and he said, every time I sing and say this line, a particular line, I want everyone to shout amen and yes to declare your commitment to Christ. So he sang these words. He says, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee, and a wave of yes, amen. Take my moment and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Yes, amen. Take my hands, let them move at the impulse of thy love. Yes, take my feet, let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Yes, take my voice, let me sing always only for my king. Yes, amen. Take my lips, let them be filled with messages for thee. Yes, amen. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Silence, utter silence. Greed has a silencing power where it does not want to be exposed. And that's why it's so dangerous. 
because we can say yes and an amen to so many things. But when it comes to our money, I'd rather not talk about it. It hides itself. But remember, it hides itself because ultimately it wants to hide the stash. And that's what we're going to look at now. When the eye sees darkness, we're blinded. And we follow darkness. But Jesus says it also leads our whole bodies, our hearts into darkness. And it's trying to conceal, and here's what it is, the idols of our hearts. That's what greed is trying to do to conceal the idolatry that is going on in our hearts. It's not just money that Jesus is condemning because it's not just about money. What word does he use in the beginning verse? Does he say, don't treasure money? He says, where is your treasure? He's talking about what you value, where you put your worth, what you think is important. No one daydreams about money or its monetary cash but one danger is about what money can bring you, what money can get you, how people see you because of your money. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, our Lord here, he's concerned not so much about our possessions, but our attitude towards our possessions. It is not what a man may have, but what he thinks of his wealth and his attitude towards it. And yet, we never, not once, do we stop and consider what our spending or our lack of spending, what that tells us about our hearts, do we? We never take that extra step. Why? Because we just see money as money. We spend it when we have it, and we don't when we don't. But let me ask you, are you anxious about money? Are you afraid of not having enough money? Are you ambitious to get more of it? Does receiving a large sum of money bring you excitement and joy in a way that Jesus hasn't recently? Are you reluctant to spend your money because you want to hoard and provide as much security as you can? It demands deeper questions about your heart. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils because it conceals our idolatry. It's not just about money. It's about the kinds of idols that money conceals inside of us, and that's what greed tries to do. It silences us. It pretends that it doesn't exist, and then it conceals something deep inside of us. Now, let's talk about some of these idols and its dangers. Second point, how money controls us. I just want to present to you a couple of counseling sessions that I have experienced throughout my time. And it gets across this idea of how money and greed covers up some of these deeper idolatries that go on inside of our heart. And it's not the same for every person. It's too deceptive to be that simple. So let me present to you case A. There's a man who works at a very cutthroat environment, and each day he goes into work, he has no idea what to expect. One day, his boss being very ecstatic and happy, and another day being a complete jerk. Some of his coworkers are, are, very, are very easy to get along with, while others are just so hard to be with and so annoying. 
due to the nature of his work. Sometimes he doesn't know if he made a fatal mistake that's going to get him fired or laid off. So he's constantly anxious, constantly stressed because of the chaotic nature of his work. And so as a result, the first thing he does when he gets his paycheck is go to the mall. Spend hours and hours online shopping, perusing through clothes, always looking up the newest gadgets, always thinking about what he can do with his money, how he can spend it, when he can spend it, how much to spend it, what to spend it on. Why does he do that? Isn't it because that's a place where he can feel like he's in control of something? Do you think the deep idolatry of his heart is simply money? Isn't it wanting and exercising control in his life and not entrusting God's control over his life? Isn't it feeling the satisfaction of, I can determine how I spend my money because I earned it and it's rightfully mine. Therefore, this is one area of my life where no one can tell me what to do. I'm in control. Isn't it worshiping a lowercase g, God, of control and power? Let me present to you case B. There's another person, and she works overtime hours any chance she gets. And whenever December comes around for her performance review, she gets more and more anxious. And always after that performance review, She's either ecstatic because of her raise or devastated because she's not getting one. Either way, the result of that review and the result of her salary, salary deeply affects how she feels. But if you examine her spending habits, here's the thing. She has none. <laughs> she doesn't spend money, not on anything. She lives in a modest apartment, a modest car, doesn't have extravagant clothes, but yet she hoards and hoards as much money as she can. And the feeling of security that she gets when she sees that number rise in her bank account, it makes her feel safe. Do you think her deep idolatry is simply money? Or isn't it an idolatry of wanting to feel secure and safe in the amount of money that she has and not finding her safety and her security in God alone? That's why there are instances during marriage counseling, and have I seen it too, and the fight about money, there's always deeper issues. And there's a story about this one pastor, he was counseling this husband and wife, and the issue was on how they spent their money and the complaint was from the husband that the wife, she just spent too much money on herself, on all these clothes, makeup products, all of these things. And the wife's complaint was the husband was too stingy, too miserly, relax, we have money, we can spend it. So as he was counseling them, the husband says, oh, I get it now. So she actually has a deeper idolatry of her wanting to feel liked of people uh, seeing her in a certain kind of way, and that feeds her idolatry. That's why she's using money to feed this deeper idolatry of wanting people to view her in a certain way. The pastor said, yeah, you're right. But then he also said this to the husband. Do you also see that by not spending or giving away anything, 
by stocking away every penny, you are being just as selfish because you are quote unquote spending absolutely everything on your need to feel secure and safe. And we can go on and on with more examples. The one who uses career advancement, money, fancy cars, extravagant houses, what they post on Facebook, actually Instagram now, I gotta keep up with the times. Why? Out of an idolatry of caring too much on what people think. And isn't that worshiping a lowercase g God, the God of people's approvals and their respect? Rather than, rather than worshiping the God whose approval is the only approval that matters. Or the one even who gives and gives so much money to charities even, even to the church, even to missions. But he does it because that makes him feel like he's a good person. Isn't that an idolatry of self? Always deeper. Andrew Carnegie, he did the same thing. Right before he died, he built actually over 2,000 libraries. That's why whenever you go somewhere, Carnegie Library. He donated a lot of money to a lot of these NPOs right before he died. But you know what he did? All he did was simply replace one idolatry of storing all this money for himself to another idolatry of feeling better about himself because of the good he did. Do you see how money conceals? See how dangerous it is? That's why Jesus uses such strong language to condemn it. Because it's not just the money he's condemning, but the idolatries underneath it. In verse 24, Jesus makes a very strong dichotomy between God and money. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And like other sayings of Jesus, you might wonder, why is he being so harsh here? Isn't he being a little over the top? Why does he present money as if it's God's equal and it's antithetical to God? Why? Because it's not just money that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about idols. And idols, by definition, are opposed to God because they are false gods. That's why he presents them in the same category, saying you can only serve one God. Either the God of the Bible or the God of your approval, the God of your security, the God of your pride, the God of your reputation. Choose one. That's why he uses this antithetical language. And look closely at what Jesus is saying. Look how he says, you cannot serve God and money. You see, the assumption that Jesus makes is not that we're in danger of exclusively serving money and totally pushing God to the side. That's not what he's assuming. He's not assuming that we're going to choose money over God, but he's speaking about the way that we try to serve both God and money at the same time. And this cuts a lot deeper because this is so accurate of us. Because our danger is not tomorrow morning that we're going to denounce God altogether and say, you know what, I pledge my allegiance to money. No one's going to do that tomorrow. But you know how it's going to creep up into our lives? is when we pray the Lord's Prayer, God, you give us our daily bread, but then we walk into work tomorrow fearing that we're going to get laid off. We grow anxious about how we're going to make ends meet. That's how idolatry keeps, creeps in. Both God and money. The danger is not us just 
completely stopping giving our money for God's work and church and missions. The danger is when we spend too much on ourselves, and at the same time, because we feel guilty, we still give our 10% to the church, and because of that, we feel better about ourselves. It's when we try to serve both God and money. It's not both and danger, not an either-or danger Jesus is talking about. And that's how idols work. It never confronts us directly to denounce God, but what it does is it presents itself into our lives, it comes as harmless. A lot of good things in this world, they are good because God created them. We are meant to enjoy certain things in this life, things that we can purchase. But what happens is that those good things, over time, it makes us trust them. And it seeks to influence us. And it then it seeks to control us. And whatever controls us, by definition, is God. Boy-Jones, we have become their slaves. We are mastered by its appetites. Rebecca Pippert, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. So what influences your decisions? It sneaks up on us. I know even for myself, whenever you choose a job, what's the first thing you consider? How much does it pay? Rather, the questions of what does this mean for my family and spiritually even and my church community? When does that question become a priority? What controls your decision? Is it God or is it an idol? What controls your emotions? Does having money or not having money control your emotions? Does having it or not having it dictate how you view your quality of your life? Or do how people spend their money affect your view of them? Oh, they're so extravagant and careless. Or to others, why are they so stingy? Why are they giving more to the church and for missions? And your view of them changes because of money. Is there a deeper idolatry going on? And that's what Jesus is getting at final point, how the gospel frees us, how the gospel frees us. So we talked about its deception and the danger and its control. Now he warns us that even though he gives us this instruction, he also gives us a command. It's actually the only command in this passage, and it's different from what you would expect. Hearing what I just said now, the natural response for us is, okay, we got to get rid of these bad desires, we got to crush these idolatries. we got to suppress these greed, uh, greedy desires of our lives. And that's what a lot of people do. That's why we get monks, right? They want to leave the ambitions and the temptations of this world and their greed, so they go to a secluded place so that they're not tempted by them, both Christian and non-Christian monks. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, Suppress these desires, destroy these idolatries by yourself, but rather value the things of heaven. It is not the presence of your desire, but where you place them. That's the issue. And he says you need to place your desires in 
Christ in heaven. That's where we need to store up our treasures. John Wesley says, we must value all things by the price they shall gain in eternity. We shall, must value all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. So Jesus' command is not to do away with these things, but what does he say in verse 20? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is he saying? He's telling us to look up, gaze at heaven and place your priority on him and the things of his kingdom and store up treasure for yourself in heaven. It's still for ourselves, but it's in heaven now, not on earth. And this isn't selfish because this is ultimately what pleases God and what is honorable to him. And as a result, we'll find ourselves free from the idolatries of greed. You see, in verse 21, what Jesus says is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about what he's saying really profound. Do you know what he's saying? Treasure the things of God first, and then your heart will follow. To show you how different it is, do you know that saying, home is where the heart is, right? Home is where the heart is. Jesus is reversing that. Your heart is where your home is, meaning whatever you treasure, whatever you're inclined to, whatever you're gazing at first, Let that be priority, and then the emotions, then your hearts will follow. He's making a distinction between one's inclination and one's will versus one's emotions. And he says, if you make your inclination, your gaze, your priority, your gaze on Christ, on heaven, your emotions will follow. For example, parents know very well that you are inclined to love your son. You actually love him, right? But at the same time, there are many moments you actually hate him emotionally. But does that mean you don't love him? No. Both can coexist. Because the way you incline towards him, the way you will to love him is deeper, is stronger. And that dictates the emotions that will eventually follow. And that's what Jesus is saying. Let the emotions come later. But fix your gaze, fix your eyes on heaven and the things of heavenly priority. And all of these things will follow. But on the other hand, what we tend to do is we allow our hearts to lead the way, don't we? And then as we grow affections for certain things, whatever our fickle hearts latch onto, we end up treasuring that. Isn't that how it works for us? We need to, in a deeper sense, Go deeper than our emotions, our wills, our inclinations need to treasure Christ and our affections will follow. I love the way the King James Version puts um, Colossians 3. It says, set your affections on the things above, not on the things that are on this earth. That word set It's very active, very intentional. Place your affections up there. Set it up in heaven, and your heart will follow. It's just like driving. You know, one of the first advice that I got when I was driving was, don't look too closely in front of you. 
actually look 20, 30 yards away because only then will you drive in a straight line. If you look too closely, then you're going to swerve all over the place, right? So what Jesus is saying, stop looking one year, two year, five, ten years of your life, but look at eternity, the kind of value, the things you do now, how much value that will have in heaven. And when we gaze upward, what are we looking at? It's Christ. We're looking at Christ himself. I want this verse to be very uh, 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 very um, foundational for our thinking here. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So it's not a removal or, or suppressing our desires for these fleeting pleasures of idolatry, but rather it's replacing those desires with far better ones. It's a desire for God that replaces our desires to feed our idols, all in light of seeing the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ. And how do you recognize his beauty and his worth? You consider the, de- you consider the depths of this gospel message of what it truly means for Jesus to give up his riches for you. Dwell on that. It's not just about suppressing these desires, but replacing them with far better ones. Let me explain it in this way. There's an example from Greek mythology. I'm sure we heard this story, and it tells this difference. Homer, he writes this story of Odysseus. And in his many travels, one of the events was he had to sail past the sirens. You know, the sirens, they're these Greek nymphs, and they have this beautiful singing, but that singing would lure sailors to their deaths as they crashed onto this cliffs and its rocks. And Odysseus, approaching this, he knew the danger. So he also prepared how to actually get by. But at the same time, he was very curious on what this singing was like. So what he did was, as you know the story, he told all of his sailors to take beeswax and to plug up their ears so they're not affected by it. But he himself, he wanted to listen to the singing. So he told his sailors to strap them up to the mast and no matter what he says, to not let them free so that they could safely pass through that, uh, uh, that uh, siren's island. Did he get by? Yes. But let me tell you a different Greek story with a similar event. There's another Greek hero, and his name is Jason. And he was sailing with his companions past the sirens as well. But in this story, rather than a defensive maneuver, trying to suppress and trying to prevent yourself and to fight against the siren song. You know what Jason did? He had a friend named Orpheus, and he was a skilled musician. And he tells Orpheus to play the lyre as they sail past the siren. And as they did, Orpheus' song overflowed. It drowned out the singing of the sirens. And as they listened to Orpheus' song, they got by safely. Do you see the difference? When we have these desires for these idolatries, our goal is not to suppress them, to fight them and say, you know what, I'm going to minimize my house now. That's going to make my life a lot better. There's an extra step with that. What are you replacing your desires with? 
Are you singing to the same song that this world is listening to? Or are you listening to a better song as you set your affections and your ears to heaven? See, when greed deceives us and it controls us, what it does is makes us focus ultimately on ourselves trying to create life change, to resolve ourselves to do this or to do that with our money, but we'll never get at the root of idolatry because we see it's not just about our money. It's much deeper than that. But the only thing that can replace a false God is by the real God, by Christ himself. And that happens not when we just try to block out all the noises of this world and the power of money, But when we drown it out with the song of the gospel, we replace idolatrous affections with heavenly affections. And the deeper you understand the worth and value of Jesus Christ, and the deeper you understand how he gave all that up for your sake, as you dwell on that, that's what creates your life to change to consider how he became poor when he was rich, to consider the kind of glory that he forsaked for us, forsook for us. And he paid that ultimate price of his own life by dying on the cross, and he purchased our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. But furthermore, do you know what else he purchased with his life? He purchased your security and your safety so that you don't have to depend on the amount of your checkbook to feel safe. Because when you consider what Jesus did for you, God willing, up, willing to give up his life, he gave it up for your security and for your safety. And more than the things that you have, if you have the God and the giver of all things looking out for your well-being, looking out for your security, you don't need to depend on that performance review. He purchased your peace And even when your life feels like it's going out of control and the deeper you understand what this gospel truly means for all of your insecurities, your desire for power, your reputation, it changes you radically. Because now your control is not based on what's going on around you. Not based on how much money you have, but based on God who's in complete control, so that even in Jesus' death, even in his crucifixion, God was completely in control. Why? Because he wanted it to uh, result in our good, in our salvation, in our everlasting life. And if we truly understand that, then what is it this 5, 10, 20, 15, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, 90 years? Look eternally. When you truly understand how Jesus became poor so that we would be rich. The deeper you understand what this truly means for all of our insecurities, our desires for all of these things, it will change us radically. It changes us internally, and it changes us horizontally. And I want to end with these two things. How does it change us internally? Well, first of all, it produces a deep contentment in what you already have in Jesus. It produces a deep contentment, even in spite of all the uncertainties that money, your wealth, your career, your future might bring. Look at this contrast, okay? I hope I can really contrast these two things. Earlier this week, I was cleaning out some junk, and I ended up selling this old computer monitor for $10, okay? 
And I was really happy because I like the feeling when I can make money off of my junk. So I sold this computer monitor. It was on a Tuesday morning. And I got $10, and I was so happy. I was in a good mood. I said, Joanna, I'm in a good mood today. I got $10 from this monitor. Let's go watch Captain Marvel. Because on Tuesdays, tickets cost $5 each. And we can buy two tickets. And it's like watching that for free. And so we're all excited. So here we are, Tuesday night, and we're leaving. And on the way out, I check my mail. I grab some envelopes. And one of the envelopes on the top of it says, New Jersey Turnpike. And I open it. And supposedly, we went through an easy pass station without it detecting our easy pass. So New Jersey fined us for $35. Now, my reaction to that was very different from how my emotions were 20 minutes ago. It went from up here to down here, where I was cursing all that New Jersey stood for. <laughs> I was saying, how could this state not detect my easy pass? What a state, huh? And Joanna, she was just wondering what's going on. She's observing all of this, and she's seen how my emotion went all the way from up here to down here. And you know how bad it was? She says, do you just want to go back home? <laughs> That's how bad she felt. How horrible of a person am I? How does money control me so much that even that something as small as 20 bucks can affect me that deeply? On the other hand, let me tell you about a Puritan theologian, okay? His name is Matthew Henry. One day he was going home, and when he was on his way home, he was robbed, and he was beaten up. And when he got home, he wrote in his diary, which we still have today. And do you know what he wrote? He writes this. Lord, I began with New Jersey. He begins with, Lord, I thank you that I have never been robbed before. That although they took my money, they spared my life. That although they took everything, it wasn't very much that it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. Thank you, Lord. Do you see the difference? Easy pass, being robbed. Where's my focus? Governor Christie, New Jersey. Where's his focus? Heaven. It changes you internally. It provides a contentment that this world can't have an answer for. It also changes you horizontally. Let me end with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 makes you realize, and here's the thing, Jesus did not give out of his riches. It says that he gave out of his poverty. Here, you can see. By his poverty that we might become rich. So it's not as if Jesus from heaven and all of his riches, he just sent down all of these treasures down to us and says, enjoy this, enjoy this blessing. But he actually let aside, let aside, set aside all of those riches, all of his glory. He became poor first, lived in poverty, and out of that poverty, he gave us. Do you see the difference? It changes us because when you think about that, whenever you're convicted to give to God's church, to his work, his missions, what's the first question we think? Do I have enough? That doesn't matter for God because it's not 
whether he has enough, but actually in his poverty, he gives for the sake of others. That's what should dictate us. In our poverty, can we give? Can we look to God's kingdom first? You know, a few years ago, I was watching the news, and there was a man who died in a very tragic traffic accident, and he was a, a delivery man for a local Chinese restaurant. I have a picture of him here. And as they investigated and tried to contact his family, they couldn't contact anyone. Why? Because he had no family. And so they traced back to the restaurant where he worked, and the more they found out about him, they were amazed at what they found. They found that he was sponsoring five orphans from 2006 to 2011. He had given a total sum of $3,500. Now, it's not a lot of money, but talking with the owner of this restaurant, the journalist found out that his monthly salary was $700 making deliveries. And when they saw his bank transactions, they found multiple transactions, some of them two or three times a day, $7 here, $20 here, $50 if it's one of the orphan's birthdays. And whenever he had extra money to give, right away he would go to the bank and make a transaction. And the owner was saying how once he asked this man, isn't it hard making ends meet with your salary? And do you know what the man said? Every day is a day to be thankful for. Even eating plain rice in water every day, I'm very thankful. And they found out that he wasn't exaggerating. Because after the accident, when they had to go to his home because no one could claim his belongings, they found out where he lived, a very small studio, not even 10 square feet. This is five square feet, two of these platforms. And all he had was this little desk, and they actually literally found one bowl where he actually ate out of. And the journalist, this whole segment, was trying to figure out why or how he lived such a life of generosity, and they couldn't figure it out. But others, and I did, because in that semi, do you know what's on his desk? It's a Bible. It's a Bible. And immediately, my mind went to Matthew 6. Lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. And can you imagine the joy that he's going to have when he even sees those orphans coming up to him saying, thank you. Don't you want that kind of treasure? to enjoy for all of eternity. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I pray that our church, that our church's vision, that we will desire the song of this gospel far more than whatever song this world can provide. Be thou our vision. Riches we heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let us pray. Can I invite us to take a few seconds and consider this. When was the last time you seriously considered your spending habits? If God saw your checkbook and saw all of your transactions, 
Where would he say that you're valuing your possessions in? Maybe all of us, myself included, we need to take a very sober look because our relationship with God, it affects all aspects of our lives, even our spending. Let's take that time to ask for the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. Let's pray.